0: Well, I want to welcome all of you. My name is Chad, and I'm so humbled and glad that you joined us online today because faith and life can be complicated, and you want to get it right, and so do we, and we just want to help. And rather than seeing all the changes this pandemic has brought as to how we do church, rather than seeing it as negative or as setback, we're working to seize this amazing opportunity to get even better in how we operate and serve as a community, because the thing that hasn't changed is our passion to create a church that the unchurched would love to attend and engage and help everyone that it's at least spiritually curious to find and follow Jesus more closely every day. And so much of what we do is made possible by the generosity of men and women and even children that want to be a part of something bigger than themselves that can make a tangible difference in the lives of others. Our vision is to be a catalyst for spiritual and social change makers. And in addition to providing the chances like this one to grow spiritually and relationally through teaching, through gathering opportunities and through resources, we are also tangibly engaged with helping struggling individuals in our community. Uh, We're partnered with organizations like ICT SOS to end sex trafficking in Wichita and to assist trafficking victims, as well as Project Laundry, in which we provide up to three loads of laundry and a meal for struggling families in the city each month. And so if any of this sounds like something that you'd like to be a part of, just click the giving link in the comments to partner with us with either a one time gift or recurring giving. But either way, we would love to have you partner with us as we work to make a difference in our city and beyond. And today's a great day to be joining us as we begin a brief new series simply entitled How to Maintain Hope. When the world seems hopelessly broken. But before we jump in, I got the word out to all of you that I could ahead of time uh, to have juice and bread or even wine ready for the end of this message. Uh, if you haven't uh, already, right now would be a great time to make sure that's all ready. You can even push pause and go grab it and have it within reach. And if you have no clue what I'm talking about, it's, it's okay. At the end, I'll explain and I'll give you uh, some uh, opportunity and some explanation how you can participate As well, but before we jump in, let me pray for us, God. Right now, uh, we are just surrounded by so much craziness and uh, uncertainty, Father. There is just so much angst and anger on social media and division within our country, and and God, for many of us, uh, we're struggling uh, in different ways because our entire lives have been disrupted. Some of us more than others, but Father, just nothing is the same. And it's so difficult to plan next week, let alone anything beyond that. And God, for us, this is just all different and creates a different type of anxiety and stress. So I, I pray for everyone that's listening to my voice, and I pray for all of us, that God, that you would help us, uh, in a sense, to just push pause on all of that noise around us, to take a moment to truly be in this moment. And that, Father, that you would give us the ears to hear and a mind that can process and the heart that receives what it is that you would have for us today. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Well, one of the most dramatic event moments in all of human history took place in an environment that we've come to refer to as the upper room. It took place towards towards the end of Jesus' ministry, and most of you know this story. Essentially, Jesus and his disciples had come to Jerusalem, and they were going to celebrate the Passover together. And the Passover meal was a remembrance meal, where Jewish people would gather together in homes to share a specific meal to remember what had happened hundreds of years earlier when the Israelites had their last meal in Egypt. They had been in Egypt for 400 years as a group of people that started as a family that grew into a nation that became an enslaved nation. And at the time of the Passover, all they'd ever known was slavery. And they had prayed and prayed and prayed to their God for over 400 years. Their prayers went unanswered. And for most of us, after four days, we're asking the question, where's God? Does He care? Is He there? Is He listening? Is He able to do anything? 400 years their prayers had gone unanswered, but then God finally sent them a deliverer, Moses. And Moses said, tonight an angel of death is going to pass over the land of Egypt and will kill every firstborn male in every single family that does not have the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and over the door of the home. And tomorrow, we're leaving. And we have this amazing event in history recorded for us in the Old Testament. The Israelites taking Moses at his word, killed a lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, had a meal. And that night, as, G- as Moses had warned, the angel of death passed over the land of Egypt. Thousands of Egyptians died. And the next morning, Pharaoh said, OK, you may go now. But the night before was the last meal, the last supper for Israelite families gathered in Egypt. And the next day, they packed up everything, plus we're told the Egyptians loaded them up with wealth, and they left Egypt and headed towards what would become known as the Promised Land. Now, 1,400 years after that event, Jesus is going to gather with his disciples to have this Passover meal. They had done this before, but this time was different. Because when they had gathered for the Passover meal before, things were great. Jesus was a rock star. He was a celebrity. Thousands of people would gather to hear him speak on more than one occasion. He's going to overthrow Rome, and the crowds were getting bigger and bigger. The miracles were getting bigger and bigger, and there was all this momentum. And the disciples were like, we are closest to the guy who's going to become the number one leader of this nation. But as they gathered for this supper, things weren't going so well. The momentum had turned around. Rumor was there were powerful people trying to isolate Jesus from the crowd and arrest him. And the disciples knew that if Jesus went down, that they would go down with him. And then he began talking about being taken and his death. And they're just, they just sort of filtered all that out because in their way of thinking, it's much like our way of thinking. And this is so important because our way of thinking is if God is with you, then things get better. If, if God is working in you and around you, well, then, of course, things get better. And if, if, if God is there and God cares, there is more certainty, not less certainty. And yet, there they are with Jesus himself, and they found themselves in a time where suddenly things weren't better. They were far less certain. He told them uh, that they were going to go to Jerusalem and that things were going to get really, really bad. And, and they were asking what we would ask. Well, then why are we going? Why are we going there? It's as if he didn't care that he was walking right into the jaws of death. In the face of all that, he turns to his disciples and he says what he says to you and I, follow me. They get to the outskirts of Jerusalem and they stop and they wait for the sun to set. And Jesus sends two of them into the town to meet a mysterious man who takes them to a mysterious place. Somehow Jesus had prearranged the Passover meal, but he never told his disciples about it because this was a time he wasn't sure he could trust even them. And as it turns out, he couldn't. He didn't want anyone to know where they would be because they would be isolated from the crowds and vulnerable. So they sneak into Jerusalem under the cover of night. No big celebration, no big crowd shouting, Hosanna in the highest, none of the other things that they had experienced. And they go to this home, they go upstairs, and they gather in this upper room. And it was just so strange and so unsettling. And like never before, there was no certainty And to make matters worse, when the evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12 while they were there reclining at the table eating. He said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Literally, one of you is going to hand me over. And nobody in the room asked, we'll hand you over to who? They knew the answer to that question. And then punctuating the insult, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And to eat with someone in that culture is much like eating with someone in our culture. It would be like having somebody over for dinner and saying, hey, thanks for coming over to my home. By the way, I know that you are going to betray me. They're in the midst of this most intimate setting possible in that culture, much like our culture. And he says, not only is it one of you, it's one of you that's chosen to gather with me around this sacred table to celebrate this amazing thing that God has done. And one of you eating with me is going to betray me. Mark tells us, they began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. This was predicted ahead of time. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Now I want to pause for just a second to say something important. This gathering of ancient documents, 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years in three different languages from three different continents, all tell one story, and we refer to it as the Bible. Many of you actually have this version, you know, on paper and wrapped in genuine imitation leather. Uh, Many of us have it in digital form, even on our phones. But this gathering of documents we refer to as the Bible is full of stories and narratives written and taking place in the midst of extraordinary uncertainty. You realize that, right? As we as individual people and families in a country, in a nation, in a world facing incredible uncertainty and at times the unsettling feeling that we're living in a world in 2020 that seems hopelessly broken, this is the perfect place to run. Do you know that? Because your favorite story from the Old Testament or the New Testament, the stories many of you were raised with or you'd love to hear repeated, if you have a favorite passage of Scripture or a favorite psalm, if you have one, it it was written in and reflected a time of extraordinary uncertainty. This is not a gathering of documents telling a story about rich people having fun. This isn't a story about, and then things went great, and then Monday got even better, and Tuesday I got a great job, and Wednesday I got a raise, and Thursday a bonus, and then Friday all my kids became professional athletes and went to medical school on a scholarship. I mean, all those wrinkle-free, lived happily ever after things, not in here. Every single narrative and every single passage, the thing that we draw hope and security from, all of those things come from dark, troubled times in the lives of people who had discovered that in the midst of uncertainty, God was still certain that in the midst of uncertainty, when you couldn't even sense or trace God's hands, when it seemed like he was completely and utterly absent, they discovered that God was still trustworthy. I'm telling you, if ever there was a time for all of us to pick up this book, to dust it off, to download the YouVersion Bible app, to pick a reading plan, whatever, and read it It's now. Most of you are familiar with one of my favorite stories, the story about the teenager Joseph in the Old Testament. And I know some of you have problems with your older brothers, but Joseph finds himself in the bottom of a deep well, and above, he hears his brothers having this conversation. Should we sell him? Should we kill him? Sell him? Kill him. I don't know. Let's sell him. Nah, let's kill him. Again, I realize you have sibling rivalry even as adult times and there's issues at home over inheritance or who's going to care for mom or dad or she wore my shirt and stretched it out or he borrowed something without asking and Joseph's in the bottom of a well do we sell him or do we kill him and you read the story and you discover though it appeared that God had turned his back on Joseph and was preoccupied with other things in the world God was actually with Joseph in fact Joseph had God's undivided attention and you read a story about King David who eventually the Messiah would come from through his lineage and i know you've got problems with your kids One day, David is awakened to discover that his son has raised an army and he's about to invade the capital city, kill those that oppose him, conquer David, his father, and replace him as king. And again, we have trouble with our kids. And in that moment, it appears that God has turned his back on and has abandoned David. And yet you read the whole story and you discover that God was right there in the middle of all that with David. And there's a story most of us heard about, gr- about growing up, about a mother who had a baby son. And like any mother, she loves her precious baby. And she was told that Pharaoh had decided to murder all the baby boys because there had been too many Israelites in the land. And there's just so much emotion around babies and around children. And so many prayers are prayed for sick children. And too many of us in ministry have buried too many children. And here's a mother who wraps up her newborn son, puts him in a basket, and shoves him out into the Nile River, as if to say, if it's between the river and the crocodiles and the Egyptian butchers, I'm taking my chances with the crocodiles. And you read this story, and you discover that in a a moment that God seemed utterly absent, far away, aloof, unconcerned. God was there. In fact, that mother and that baby had heaven's undivided attention, And the little baby was found, and they named him Moses, and he became the deliverer of a nation, of the nation. But don't miss this. On the day she floated her defenseless baby boy out onto a river, she did not know the end of the story. In that moment that she gave that gentle push, it was, where's God? And then another baby would be rescued from a similar fate. Mary and Joseph discovered that Herod, in his jealousy for his kingdom, reacting to a rumor that there was a baby boy born that would grow up to be the Jewish king, he decided instead of trying to find the baby, he would just wipe out an entire generation of little Jewish boys. He sends his butchers into Bethlehem and the surrounding area and murdered every single baby and toddler boy. And Mary and Joseph escaped, escaped to, of all places, Egypt to save the baby Yeshua, Jesus. And there was weeping and wailing in and, and, and the land. And you read this story and you dis- discover that God was right there in the middle of all that, in every single story. And you need to read and reread these for yourself. In every single story where it seems like things have spun out of control and all the momentum is backwards and all God's activity has ceased and the bad guys and the evil king have won and the gods of the pagan empires have won, you read these stories and you discover in the midst of extraordinary uncertainty, there's God. And When life is uncertain, God is not. He is, has still got the world, your world in his hands let me continue back to our verses as they were eating jesus took bread blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said you've been eating this passover since you were children but from now on when you eat it this is my body this time the passover won't represent the broken body of a lamb it will represent my body jesus said this is my body given that will be has been broken for you and the disciples like were like what do you mean this is your body I mean, if you're from God, when things, if you're from God, then things go well. If you are from God, then there will be more certainty, not less. But Jesus then took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them. And so they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood that establishes the new covenant. It is shed for many. From now on, it won't be the blood of a lamb that spilled for sacrifice. It won't be the blood of a lamb that saves my people. It will be my blood. And he foreshadows what's going to take place just hours later when he's going to be flogged, tortured, and nailed to a cross and die in front of their very eyes. And then they leave that room and they walk down into this small valley and then up to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's just so much drama. And then on the way, Jesus goes, oh, by the way, just to make things worse, not only will one of you betray me, but you will all fall away. You will all follow away, Jesus told them, for it is written, this was predicted, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen and they just totally this they, they miss this part, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter's thinking enough. Enough negative, enough about betrayal and arrest. There's no way that we're allowing this to happen because if God is with you, if you're in the center of God's will, this is not how the story goes. There will be more certainty, more faith, more miracles, more activity, more intervention, not less. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. You're wrong, Jesus. Even if everyone abandons you, I will not. I am with you to the end. And then, just hours later, this very same big, burly, strong-willed fisherman uh, with all of his faith would be bested by a middle school-aged girl. And her simple accusation of him being one of Jesus' followers, it would lead him to deny him that he even knew Jesus. Three times he did that, and with cursing. See, most of us possess the intellectual belief that God knows the beginning and the end, but at the same time, we can and do wrestle with and feel and experience extraordinary uncertainty. We're all experiencing it in real time, Uh, not just with COVID, but with COVID, the face mask and jobs and the economy and uh, the upcoming election and racial tension and protests and riots and looting and beyond all that 2020 extra, most of us have experienced and are experiencing it now or will in the future in our singleness, our marriages, our families, our jobs with our children or our health, our finances with our church, our culture, with our leadership, our Congress, the Senate, our government leaders, with our economy, our retirement, the ability to go or to send our kids to college. I mean, we are in the midst of what for some of us is unprecedented uncertainty. And with all that uncertainty, here's one of the deepest core questions many of us are grappling with right now, but we will all grapple with eventually. And it's this question. Can I trust God? Can I maintain faith in and continue to embrace faith in God as a personal, trustworthy, heavenly Father when there is absolutely no evidence of His activity in my life, my culture, my city, my country, seemingly in 2020 in our world? Your answer to that question will determine your response to the continual and continuing uncertainty in your life, in our world, in your world, your answer to this question would determine how you respond to the uncertainty in the lives of your children, your grandchildren, your families, your aging parents. And, and here's part of the dilemma that we face, especially as Americans, and that is that we often equate God with prosperity. And why shouldn't we? We've been so incredibly blessed and prosperous as a country. Now, I'm fully aware that there is poverty and injustice in our country. But with all of its injustices and problems, we live in a country that has been extraordinarily blessed. And as a result, most of us equate God's presence and blessing with physical, tangible blessing. And that's not surprising. I mean, it's been the experience for many people in our country for generations. But imagine if months later, you were to talk to the men that had gathered that night at the table, and you were to ask them, hey guys, when was one of the darkest moments as you followed Jesus? When did you have the least amount of hope and began to wonder if maybe you made a mistake in following him? When did you feel God was the farthest away? And I think they'd say, it began that night of our last supper together. When we realized things weren't going to get better, they were going to get worse. And not only would one of us betray him, all of us would fall away. And then a few hours later, we did exactly what Jesus said we would. I mean, we didn't even wait for him to die and we abandoned him. And the one guy who said he'd never fall away, just hours later, was intimidated by a 12-year-old girl and denied Jesus three times. And then hours later, we saw him arrested, tried, tortured. We saw him die. You want to know when the darkest hours were for us? It was those hours. We realized we were wrong about him. We were wrong about God. we had completely wasted our time. And now we can't even return back to our old lives without utter humiliation and likely rejection. But then if we were to ask them, okay, well, when in your time with Jesus do you think God was doing his greatest work? When do you feel God's presence was most with you, that God was doing the most as you look back? And they would have said, Those very same hours when it seemed in the moment that he was doing the least. Those very same hours when it seemed like he was absent and was missing. Because in those dark, dark hours, God was doing his greatest work. When it seemed that he was completely inactive, he was most active. Because those darkest hours were the epicenter of the salvation of mankind. Those would be the hours that for thousands of years, people all over the world would look back to and rejoice in God's goodness and grace and activity. But if you would have asked the disciples in the moment, the disciples would have said, it's game over, waste of time. We were wrong. Not a man of God. We have been fools. God is not here. We have believed for nothing. And that's a difficult message for us because it's our story. For those of us who have chosen to follow God and specifically those of us who have decided to place our faith and trust in and follow Jesus. It's, it's our story because for many of us, that's our experience. That God seems to wait to the last minute to do his most amazing work. That God tends to wait until the situations and the circumstances seem so broken and hopeless and then show up not in the way we would choose because we would never allow things to get as bad as oftentimes they get but this is God's way. The greatest things begin in the biggest messes. The most amazing works of God generally are launched in a time of incredible personal or national or even global brokenness. And while we may not understand why, why God is this way, the question for you and for me is, will we maintain faith when we cannot see his hand? As our faith begins to stumble and shake a little and waver as we look and focus on the circumstances we're in and whatever it is that we're facing begins to surround us and we don't see God, we don't sense His presence. When God seems utterly absent and we begin to doubt, will we go to this place and lean on God's track record? Because all of these stories and all of these words and all of these stories of salvation were birthed in times of extraordinary darkness and uncertainty. Because if that weren't the case, then there would be no need for salvation, right? And you might say, well, Chad, you know, that's all neat, maybe a bit inspirational, but that's not going to help me get a job. That's not going to help me pay my bills this month. That's not going to help me in my singleness or my marriage or my kids or college or my kids who are in a tough spot. It's not going to change the doctor's report or change anything about tomorrow in this pandemic or how long I or my spouse gets to keep a job. It won't change anything about my prodigal son or daughter. and It doesn't make me well or break me free from my addiction. I mean, it's not going to make me wake up tomorrow and love or even like my spouse or be reconnected again. It's not going to change or fix any of my circumstances. And you know what? You're right. And never has there been a time as a pastor, a church leader, that I've wanted to figure this out faster and quicker and how I and our organized gathering of amazing humans that we call New Life Wichita can do more and do better, practical things to help you help each other and help the people of our community more. But here's what I know. Although that idea that God is doing the most when it appears he's doing the least, that insight truth doesn't change anything about our circumstances. Here's what it does do. It allows you to embrace peace in the midst of uncertainty. Knowing not only does God know the beginning and the end, but that God is still in control. And although life is uncertain, although my life is uncertain, God is not uncertain. And I matter to God and you matter to God. And if someone is willing to die for you, they are for you. You don't have to question it. And this knowledge and embracing it, even if it's just with our fingernails holding on, it keeps us from making decisions that further complicate the difficulties that we're facing. It allows you to go to bed tonight having peace that even in the midst of a storm, it teaches us to keep an eye out for the activity of God that may take us by surprise. As it often took the characters of the Old and the New Testament by surprise. Surprise. So so hang on to him and embrace the simple truth that even though life is uncertain, God is not. And he truly has the world. He has your entire world in his hands. Now, I know it's easy for me to stand here and say that uh, because I don't have to log up off today and face whatever's going on in your home or your circumstances where you wonder, what am I going to do? I realize that all of our circumstances are very different. And what gives me the nerve to stand here and try and encourage you is that in my own life, I have experienced great brokenness and uncertainty. I experienced it growing up in a divided home, a broken home. I experienced it in my singleness. I had seasons where my wife and I were in such a dark valley in our marriage. We weren't sure our marriage would make it through the next day, let alone years to come. I've experienced it when early in my marriage as a young husband and dad, I made a foolish, foolish financial decision that took almost three years to recover from. I, alongside my wife, faced difficult, painful nights filled with fear and heartache, not knowing where one of our teenage sons was, as we were desperately seeking to keep him from imploding his life and taking our marriage along with it. And I remember being angry at God, wondering where was he? Because... We had done the right thing. We worked hard to raise our son well. And because we expected, okay, if we put God at the center of our lives and our family, well, then that equals these results. And things will be more certain. And they were not. And it was, God, where are you? I've experienced it in having one of my best friends betray me in such a way that it caused incredible suffering. It could cause suffering for and displace not just me, but my entire family. It felt like my world was crumbling around me. See, this isn't just some sort of pep talk I'm giving you. This isn't just what a preacher is supposed to say. Rather, after five decades on this planet, this is deeply, deeply personal to me. And what's common to all of us is that life and faith and relationships are complicated. And all of us have faced or are, or are facing right now a difficult challenging, painful circumstance, or multiple circumstances. They feel uncertain, but here's what I desperately want to drive to into each and every one of your hearts and your minds, and that's this, that even though life is uncertain, God is not, and He has your whole world in His hands. However, for some of you listening today, the truth is you haven't actually entrusted your world into His hands. You've kept God and Jesus and all of it at an arm's distance, and I've been exactly where you are. But eventually I, and many of those joining us online today, we came to a point where something within us prompted us enough. Enough games, enough strong-arming God, enough pretending. It's time for you to put your world and your life into his hands, to acknowledge that all those eyewitnesses who were willing to die for what they saw, a man who predicted and pulled off his own death and resurrection, punctuating that he was and is who he claimed he was and is, the Savior of the world for those who would trust in and follow him. And that is the best move you could ever make. And if that's you, if you're ready to truly begin following Jesus, then before the sun sets today, within the next hour, don't put it off. Message me. Reach out to me. I'm not hard to get a hold of. Reach out and let's have that conversation. And lastly, what could be more perfect uh, with, than this? I got the word out in advance to all of you that I could that are already connected to new life. So I hope that you have what you need within reach. Uh, for those of you that don't, don't stress. Don't let this be weird. You can just do this later if you're so inclined. And even for those of you that are ready, I know this is going to feel a little unfamiliar, but nothing's normal these days, right? And, and this is us doing what the church has done for 2,000 years all around the world, and that's adapting to their context. And today, it's going to be almost like going back in time to the earliest followers who did what we're about to do in our homes, and that's experience communion. The experience that has been passed down to us through centuries by the Jesus followers who came before us. A spiritual family tree that, this is cool, traces back to that very room on that very night when things seemed to be utterly spitting out of control. To the night that Jesus inaugurated the new covenant that we spent the past five weeks focusing on, that focuses on his body and his blood. So if you're a Jesus follower, even brand new, then and you, and you have everything ready, then I'm just going to ask you to take the bread and hold it for a second. We're told that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Let's do that. And then in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Say, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. And whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. I know some of you are with your families and everybody's still doing this, but let me pray for us. God, I thank you. Thank you for loving us so much that you were willing to send your son in spite of all the reasons that you had not to. God, we're not worthy of your love. We have made so many mistakes, we have missed the mark so many times, and yet knowing all of that, with no guarantee you would love us we would love you back, you sent your son to come to this earth to represent you, to demonstrate the immeasurable love that you have for us. And so, Father, I I pray that, that that remembrance, that this act of communion, God, remembering what happened on that night that led to the events that literally have changed the world, that, God, that in the midst of whatever uncertainty all of us are facing right now, that, God, that you would give us peace, that you would encourage our hearts and that you would help us to feel a hope that is just irrational because you put it in our heart and our mind, the knowledge and the conviction you truly have our whole life and world in your hands and that you are trustworthy and you are for us. So I pray that for everyone that's listening to my voice and for myself, in the name of Jesus I pray, amen. Well, again, thank you so much for making the time to join with us online. Uh, For those of you that you hadn't gotten word or didn't know this was coming or weren't ready, again, um, this act of communion, even if you're brand new to the faith, this is something that you could do with a friend or do with your family later on. You could do it with your small group today or sometime this week. But I hope that you will take the moment if you miss it this morning to, to do this because this is such an amazing tangible reminder about when God feels the farthest away that he is there and that he's trustworthy. And I want you to have that encouragement and peace. Also, if you're new to new life and this has engaged you, uh, your simple next step is there's a link in the comments where you can click it and you can join our family page. It's not going to obligate you to anything. We're not going not to spam you, but it'll be just a simple next step to get a little more connected to us and explore a little behind the scenes of who we are. And uh, I would encourage you, please don't miss next week. Because next week is all about, okay, we're going to trust God and that he's trustworthy. But what do I do with all these feelings? What do I do with all this stuff that's going on inside of me in the midst of circumstances that just seems so uncertain and so unpredictable? So you're not going to want to miss next week. Invited a friend to join you online, and we'll see you then.